podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25, for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Tuesday. It is the 20th of February. Hope you're all well. The weather doesn't have a clue what it wants to do. The sky is currently blue, but it's been piss and rain most of the day so far. But, you know, we'll take the blue sky and the bit of sunshine while we can get it. Um, We're going to start on a sad note. Andreas Bremer legendary German left-back, passed away today at the age of 63 from cardiac arrest. Uh, Bremer is best known for scoring the winning goal in the 1990 World Cup final. He is best known as a swashbuckling, attacking left-back, one of the most two-footed players there's ever been, naturally right-footed, but could take Corners, free kicks, penalties, 
with his left foot when needed. He had a great career. Played for uh, Barmbeck, moved to Saarbrücken. Then he went to Kaiserslautern when he was 21, and that's really where he made his name. From there, he went to Bayern, spent two seasons at Bayern, joined Inter Milan when they were attempting to replicate what AC Milan had done with the three Dutch superstars by tri- signing three German superstars. They signed him, they signed Lothar Matthäus, and they signed Jürgen Klinsmann. And of the three, he's the one who settled best and performed the best at Inter. From there, he went to Saragossa, and then he finished off with Kaiserslautern eventually retiring at the age of 38. He went back there at 33, and people assumed it would be for a couple of years, but he played five years with them. He won 86 caps for Germany, scored eight goals, including, like I said, the winner in the World Cup final. With the German national team, he played at Euro 84, played at the Summer Olympics in 84, played at the 1986 World Cup, the 1990 World Cup, the 1994 World Cup, and also at the European Championships in 88 and 92. Part of the team of the tournament in 84 was just so prominent in that German team of that era. And you go back and you watch the old games, and obviously as a nostalgia merchant, it's something I like to do. He could play as a left-back and be a complete lockdown defender. Or he could play as a wing-back and be a glorified winger. And while he didn't have... The player I... This is an odd comparison because he didn't have the same type of flair. But his ability to beat a man and his ability to either go on the outside and cross with his left foot, cut back in and cross or attack and shoot with his right foot reminds me, well, this player kind of came a little bit after him, but Davajinola is who he kind of reminded me of. That perfect balance and ability to go either side didn't have Ginola's panache, didn't have the, the flair, was more efficient with what he would do, but could beat people for fun, had great close control, good pace, incredible stamina, could play as a defensive midfielder if needed, was more than comfortable stepping into the centre of the park. He was one of the first that I ever saw do what we now know as the inverted fullback move, where he would come from wide into a central area. You'd often see that with those German teams that played a back five, where the wing-backs, when they lost possession, and they'd shift back into a transition defense rather than playing a five-man defense with a two-man midfield and then a 10 and two strikers, one of the wing-backs would pop into midfield, the other one would get to full-back, and one of the centre-backs would shift out into a full-back zone. Bremer was very, very comfortable just dropping into midfield, and he could play there on and off the ball, which is one of his great strengths. A tremendous player, a genuinely tremendous player. 
Lothar Mateus said he's the best player he ever played with. Uh, Beppe Bergami, I saw today, just player and as a man. Won a league title with Kaiserslautern in his final year. Had won the second division in Germany the year before and the German Cup the year before that. So he had success right to the end of his career. Earlier in his career, he won a Bundesliga with Bayern. He was the runner-up in the European Cup final in 87. He won Serie A with Inter. He won the UEFA Cup with Inter and obviously won the World Cup with Germany. He was also runner-up in the World Cup in 86. And in the Euros in 92, he was part of the European Championship team of the tournament in 84 and 92. He was Serie A Footballer of the Year in 1989. He was in the Bundesliga team of the season in 86, the World Cup All-Star team in 90. He finished third in the Ballon d'Or in 1990 just consider consider that for a second he finished third in the ballon d'or in 1990 like he was a left back left backs didn't get that type of shine that type of consideration the greatest left back of all time for me is paolo maldini He finished third in the Ballon d'Or once in 2003. Brahim is the only other left-back that I know of that finished in the top three. Now, maybe Paul Breitner would have done it at some point. Let me just have a look. Yeah, Paul Breitner actually finished second. Paul Breitner, I had third in my all-time left-back list. Uh, Brema, I have 10th. That list, for those that missed it, Maldini, Irwin, Breitner, Kroll, Carlos, Fischetta, Cole, Cabrini, Camacho, and Brema. And I probably have Brema too low. I genuinely probably have Brema. He probably should be 8th. He probably should be eighth on that list. But just a phenomenal player. And a sad loss. Only 63. Like, that's no age. But, God, what a career. What an amazing career. And left us with so many incredible memories. Rest in peace, Andreas Bremer. Um... Right, we had a Premier League match last night in which Everton played host to Crystal Palace. Uh, This was not a great game of football. It was not a great advertisement for Premier League football. But Palace went into Goodison missing their four best players. Michael Alise, Cech Takure, Iberieze and Mark Wehi with no manager because... The announcement was made yesterday that Hodgson had stepped down and Glasner is taking over. We'll get to that in a sec. But no manager last night. They did play a shape that's very Glasner-esque. So clearly he's been 
advising for a couple of days. And they got a result. They came away with a 1-1. Jordan Ayew scored an outstanding goal on 66 minutes after some decent build-up play to put them one up. Everton had had probably the better chances before that. And Everton would pile on the pressure after that. But it took until the 84th minute. I think it's a Harrison corner. It's a it's a very vicious kind of corner. One of those ones <clears throat> doesn't have a whole amount whole amount of swerve and dip on it. It's kind of flat to the back post, and it's in the six yard box. It's two yards out when Amadou Onana rises up and meets it with his head to get Everton back in the game. Share the spoils. Palace will be the happier team. It's a good result for Palace to go there given they've been in horrible form. But it's a bad result for Everton. I know it's a fourth draw in five games and it lifts them out of the bottom three. But again, you're home, you're at full strength, you're playing a team with no manager missing their four best players who are in dreadful form and, you know, all things being equal, would be five points behind you in the league, if not for the flagrant rule-breaking that Everton undertook to stay in the division a couple of years ago. I think Everton should be disappointed with that result. And you look at their recent results, draw with Palace, lost to City, fair enough, drew at home with Spurs, that's a pretty good result, drew away with Fulham, lost to Luton in the FA Cup, Draw with Villa is a decent result. You got spanked by Wolves, beaten by City, beaten by Spurs. Even one since the 16th of December when you played Burnley. Now, that was when you looked like you were really starting to turn things around. You'd had the 10-point deduction. You beat Forest, you hammered Newcastle, you beat Chelsea, you beat Burnley. And you sort of made up for those 10 points and looked like you were going to finish comfortably above the relegation zone. But now we're two months later and you haven't won a league game since. And yes, there's been some difficult fixtures in there, but there's been some straightforward ones as well. And your run doesn't get easier. You've got Brighton away next. That's tough. Then you've got West Ham home. They're going to be desperate for points and David Moyes is trying to keep his job. Then you go to United. They're in good form at the moment. Then you host Liverpool, though that game might get moved if Liverpool win against Southampton in the next round of the FA Cup. Then you've got Bournemouth away. That's tough. Away to Newcastle. That's tough. Burnley home should be a win. Chelsea away is tough. Forest home, Brentford home. They're both going to be looking for points. Luton away will be tough. Favourable second-to-last game against Sheffield United. And then you go to Arsenal final day of the season. Now, there's enough points there to keep you up. There just is. Even with the deduction, Everton should stay up. However, Everton failed profit and sustainability a second time. And recent reports are suggesting that Nottingham Forest expect to get a 10-point or expect to get a points deduction. 
Well, if they're going to get one, then the likelihood is that Everton will also get one. Now, they're appealing the first one. I'm not sure they really have good grounds for it, but they're appealing the first one. The The likelihood is they might get some points back, but it's unlikely to be all of the points back. You might get two points back, four points back. But the likelihood is you're going to get hit with a second deduction, which, if they stand by the, their own rules, will be 10 points. And by the time you try and appeal that one, which I'm sure they will do, the season might well be over and you might well be relegated. If you don't get any points back, which again, is is there's a high, prob- high possibility you don't get any of your points back and you get hit with another 10-point deduction, you'll be bottom of the league. If Forrest get one as well, they'll be 17th. Now, there will only be four points between Everton and Forrest, but four points with 13 games to go can be a decent amount. And everybody else above you is going to be pretty safe. Palace and Brentford will be safe. You'll be looking at Everton on 10 points, Sheffield United and Burnley on 13, all of a sudden with a chance to stay up. Forrest on 14, and then Luton on 20, who again will have gotten this massive boost in their hopes of staying up. If this points deduction come, in all likelihood, one of Everton or Forrest are going down. The other two, Burnley and Sheffield United, I think we'll all agree, are championship bound, even with points deductions that could come for the other clubs. I think they're they're both going down. So you're looking at one of Everton or Forrest, and Forrest would have a four-point advantage. And you look at their fixtures, they go Villa away next, then Liverpool home, Brighton away, Luton away. That's a tough run. Then they get Palace home, they get Fulham home, they go to Spurs, they get Wolves home, then there's that massive game April 20th, Everton against Forest at Goodison. Then they've got City at home, but their last three, they play Sheffield United away, Chelsea home, and Burnley away. They're all winnable because Chelsea are so inconsistent. And the other two in all likelihood will be gone by then. I think the fixtures favour Nottingham Forest. Like if they go to Everton with, say, a, a three or four point advantage and get a draw with four games left, that's massive. That could clinch it for them because they'll be confident of picking up two wins in those last four games which would lead Everton needing to win three and draw one of their last four and hope to stay up on goal difference. Now, Everton's goal difference is their advantage down there, minus six, but Forrest is only minus 12. It's not a whole lot worse. And if Everton do take a spanking or two, which is always possible, I think Everton are in real trouble. I really do. And we're hearing that, the 777 takeover is looking less likely. They haven't published their accounts since 2020. There's an awful lot of question marks over where the money's come from, over their future 
capabilities. And here's the thing. If they don't buy Everton, they've loaned Everton a lot of money. That money will need to be repaid to Everton or to, to 777. And who's going to repay that? Is Mashiri going to dig into his pocket and repay it? Would new owners taking over the club be willing to pay off that loan as well, which doesn't benefit them in the slightest? You're asking new owners to take on a savage cost on that new stadium as well. Like, this is a very scary time to be an Everton fan. Very scary time. Um, For Crystal Palace, last night's result is a good one. Like I say, missing missing their four best players. They went there. They looked really cohesive. They looked well-organized. They looked like a team. The shape seemed to suit most of the players, not all of them, but most of them. You start looking at Glasner coming in. He's a big fan of the back three. The back three will suit a number of Palace players. I think a Gwehi anderson mitchell back three is probably the best they've got. <clears throat> you could play Jeffrey Schlupp as a left wing back. I think that's a role that would suit him really well. Um, Munez looks pretty good as a wing back. You go Lerma and Wharton in midfield. Olise and Eze behind a striker. If you're playing a team that you view as weaker, you could play Lerma and Eze as a midfield too and bring Franca in as one of the two behind the striker or play Olise behind two strikers. I think it's a really good appointment. He is a tremendous manager. Uh, did a very, very good job with Lask in Austria for four years. Joined Wolfsburg, got them into the Champions League, left, joined Eintracht Frankfurt, did a fantastic job there, won the Europa League, runner-up in the German Cup, made the decision to leave this past summer, despite having a year left on his deal. He's taken some time out, and now he's taking over a squad that has a lot of talent in it, but lacks direction. Now, he'll be without Czech de Cure for the rest of this season, but the good news with Czech de Cure's injury is that it almost certainly means he's still there next season. be very, very unusual for a club to buy him coming off a snapped Achilles. Uh, Rob Holding is out for the season. Michael Elise is out for probably another six weeks, which is a big blow. But you're due to get um, Eze back in a week. You're due to get Will Hughes back in about a week. Mark Wehi's about a week or so away as well. You get those three back in, things start to make a little bit more sense. You drop, like I say, drop Gwehi in at centre-back with Anderson and either Richards or Mitchell. Mitchell being left-footed, I think, would favour the balance that Glasner likes having. You bring Schlupp in as the left wing back. 
you go Lerma and Wharton, say, in midfield, Munez, right side, Eze and Franca, potentially, behind Mateta or, or Edward. That's that's good enough. That's good enough for now. And then when Elise comes back in, you add him to the mix. Come the summer, I'm sure they'll back the manager. I think they'll have to. I don't think they'd have gotten him if they hadn't made promises to him because he's turned down some pretty impressive jobs that a lot of managers would be very interested in getting. Turned down the IX job, turned down the Marseille job. We'll talk more about that after the break. Um, he's the type of guy that, you know, was able to pick and choose and he's chosen to join Crystal Palace. And I do think, I do think it's going to be a good appointment for them. I really do. I think he could get them into the top half, which would be a great achievement for Crystal Palace. And the question would be, come summer, what happens with with Eze, Olise, and Gwehi? Now, if they sell, they're going to get huge money for them. If they sell all three, you could potentially be looking in the 160, 170 million range. And if they're willing to reinvest that money, they could become better. They could. Like, you can sell your best player and get better. You can sell multiple best players and get better. The hope would be you can keep hold of one or two of them. If Elise is the one who leaves, and I think he's the most likely to leave, well, you've still got two-thirds of a really good back three in Gwehi and Anderson. Mitchell, it remains to see whether he could play that role. You might want to look for a left-footed centre-back. You'll need a left wing-back, because I don't like Mitchell as a wing-back. I like him as a full-back, not as a wing-back. Muniz looks a good bet to be a good wing-back. Got Dekure, you've got Wharton, you've got Lerma, you've got Hughes, you're well-stocked in midfield. Maybe you might want to add one more to that mix, but you don't have to. Olise would cover, more than cover, the cost of new left-side centre-back, new left-wing-back. Would absolutely cover the cost of that if you sold him. And there'd be money left over to find someone else in attack. I do think one thing he'll want to come summer is a new striker. I really do. If you look at the work, though, that he did with Randall Kolomuani and what he turned him from and into, that's what Palace are betting on, is that ability to develop players. Evan and Dicka took several strides forward in his development under Glasner. And I think part of why Glasner made the decision to leave Eintracht was that those players were being sold and he wasn't overly keen on the plans for replacements. Um, But there is a couple of players that at Eintracht that I wonder if he'd quite like to to go and, and bring with him. Whether or not they'd be open to those moves, I don't know. But like I look at William Pacho, the young Ecuadorian left side centre back, he'd be pricey enough, probably twenty five to thirty million, but he's a huge talent. He's one worth keeping an eye on. I wonder if someone like that would interest him. But I mean, you look at what what happened last summer. Kostic 
goes, or inside the summer before Kostic goes, then they don't really replace them all that well. They lose a couple of players they had in on loan. There's too much turnover. I think that's what gave him the hump a little bit. But all in all, all in all, he is a very good manager. And I think, I think he's going to prove to be a cracking appointment for, for Crystal Palace. He's well used to working with a sporting director. He's worked with Marcus Croce at, um, at Eintracht and they had a great partnership. So he'll work with Dougie Friedman, obviously at, at Palace. I think he's comfortable in that, that dynamic. Uh, but we'll see how, we'll see how this progresses over the next few months. Um, I, I really like the move. I think it's, I think it's the best they could have done. I know I'd said Potter and Steve Cooper. I, I think this is a better manager than either of them right now. I think Oliver Glasson is a better manager than either of them right now. So credit to Palace. You know, it's messy the way it's gone down with the whole thing with Hodgson being taken unwell. But overall, I think this has worked out very well for them. Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll have a look around Europe because there's been some, there's been some interesting developments. Right. Welcome back. So, uh, we're going to take a quick jaunt around Europe. Start in France. Leon won Nice nil. Now, a couple of months ago, you wouldn't have given Leon any chance in this game, but RL Mangala, formerly of Nottingham Forest, with the only goal of the game there. Big win for Leon and their resurgence continues. Lille 3, Laharve nil, a Jonathan David Hattrick. He is a player very much in form and a player I think is going to attract the attention of some pretty sizable clubs this summer and get himself a move. 16 goals in 31 games this year. He's a little bit behind his pace from last year when he scored 24 and 37 in the league, but in all competitions, he is on track to uh, put together at least similar enough numbers to what he did last year. A very, very good player that I think improves a lot of different teams. Uh, Nance nil Paris Saint-Germain two. Lucas Hernandez and then Kylian Mbappe with a penalty after coming off the bench. Strasbourg won Laurent three. Mohamed Bamba with two. Julian Poncio with the other. Federic Gilbert with the goal for Strasbourg. Um, the Chelsea ownership of Strasbourg not going great. Uh, Ren three. Clermont foot one. Omari and two for Martin Terrier. For Ren, uh, Matsima with the consolation for Clermont. Montpellier three, Metz nil. Uh, Sia, Sagnon and Savignier with the goals for Montpellier. Monaco one, Toulouse two. Big upset in this one. Um, Sierra put Toulouse one up. Akliushe equalized for Monaco and then Logan Costa got Toulouse's winner. Big win for Toulouse who are battling down at the bottom of the table. Reims won, Lons won. Um, Diakate put Reims one up, but Wesley Syed equalized six minutes later, went into half time, won one and stayed that way. And finally, Brest won, Marseille nil, Pierre Lise Malou, who was in the Premier League at one point, I believe, with Norwich. 
Uh, he got the only goal of the game. <clears throat> so what that leaves us with is PSG top 13 points clear of Brest. Everyone here has played 22 games. You've got Brest on 40, Nice on 39, Lille on 38, Monaco 38, which is why I said that was a big upset that they lost to Toulouse, who went into the weekend um, just outside the relegation spots. Um, then Lons on 36, Rennes on 34, Reims on 31, Marseille in ninth on 30, and we'll come back to them, Strasbourg and Lyon on 25. Lyon have pulled themselves off the foot of the table into mid-table and will have aims at getting into the top half. Then Le Havre on 24, Toulouse on 23, Montpellier, Laurent and Nantes on 22, Metz on 17 and Clermont's foot on 16. I'm really hopeful that someone will rescue Lamine Kamara in the summer. I think he's going to be a genuine star in the game. Uh, Marseille, ninth in the league, made the decision to sack Reno Gattuso, who'd taken over in September after Marcelino resigned slash got fed up and just walked out. Uh, Gattuso sacked after just a few months in charge. He has been replaced by Jean-Louis Gasset, who was the manager of Ivory Coast that was sacked during the AFCON. You'd imagine that's just a contract till the end of the summer, or the end of the season, rather. And they'll reassess in summer. But, I mean, this season is going disastrously for Marseille. And I'm not sure uh, Gasset is the man to change much of anything. Uh, we'll go to Italy, where we had a strong weekend in Serie A. Torino 2, Lecce 0. Bellanova and Zabata with the goals there. Inter 4, Salonatana 0. Inter continue to march towards the title. Marcus Turam, Latour Martinez, Denzel Dumfries and Marco Arnautovic with the goals. Napoli 1, Genoa 1. Morton Frundrup with the opener for Genoa. Cyril Ngonj pulled back the equaliser in the last minute for Napoli, who are just a mess. Uh, Verona 2, Juve 2, disappointing result for Juve. They went behind twice in this game. Foloranchu put Verona 1-up. Dusan Vlahovic equalised in the penalty spot. Noslin put Verona back in front. Adrian Rabiot got the equaliser. And Juve lose ground on Inter. Atalanta 3, Sassuolo 0. Pasolic, Coop Miners and Backer with the gold. It's so strange to look at that Atalanta team and not see any of that group. Ilicic, Zabata, Papu Gomes, or Luis Muriel in the team. They're all gone now. Uh, I do like how De Catelier is playing there. Skimaka has kind of been hit and miss. El Balal Toure has been hit and miss. But those are very promising young forwards. I think in time, we'll give... Atalanta, their next great attack. Uh, Lazio 1, Bologna 2. Isaksen put Lazio 1 up. Uh, El Azusi scored on 39 minutes to equalise and Joshua Xerxes got the winner. <coughs> uh, Bologna are tattooing really, really well. Thiago Mata, to be fair, doing an outstanding job there. Uh, Udinese 1, Cagliari 1, Zamora Put Udinese one up. Gaetano equalised for Cagliari. Empoli won. Fiorentina won. Lucas Beltran put Fiorentina one up. 
Maban Yang, who's just had a weird career from the penalty spot to grab Empoli a point. Frosinone, nil, Roma, three. Daniele De Rossi might be the best manager in the world, but it's too early to say. Uh, Dean Hujan, the young centre-back, Dutch centre-back, in on loan from Juve, scored an absolute worldie and then ruined it all by doing the Cristiano celebration. Sadar Ausman and Leandro Paredes from the penalty spot, wrapping up the win. Monza, four. AC Milan, two. Berlusconi from the grave with revenge. Piscina and Mata put Monza two up at half time. Piscina scored in the 45th minute. Mata scored in the sixth minute of first half stoppage time, much of which was caused by Milan's protests at the word award of the penalty that Piscina scored from. Then Oliver Giroud pulled one back on the 64th minute. In the 88th minute, Christian Pulisic equalised and it looked like it was going to a draw. Luka Jovic had been sent off, or Jovic or Jovic, whichever, was sent off in the 52nd minute. So Milan had 10 men and came back to equalise. But in the 90th minute, Warren Bondo put Monza 3-2 up. Milan threw everybody forward. And Lorenzo Colombo scored Monza's fourth. Monza's first win over Milan. Incredible. 45th, 45 plus 6, 90 and 90 plus 5. Leaving it late. Tremendous stuff. League table, Inter top, nine points clear with a game in hand over Juve. Running away with the title this year. Juve second on 54. Milan third on 52, Atalanta fourth on 45, plus a game in hand, Bologna fifth, 45. They've played a game more than Atalanta. Then it's Roma on 41, Fiorentina on 38, Lazio on 37, Napoli on 36, we'll come back to them, Torino on 36, Monza on 33, Genoa on 30, Lecce on 24, Udinese 23, Frosinone 23, Empoli 22, Sassuolo 20, Verona 20, Cagliari 19, and Salonatana on 13. Napoli, having lost Spalletti in the summer, replaced him badly with Rudy Garcia, sacked Rudy Garcia, brought in Walter Mazzari, now sacking Walter Mazzari, and appointing Calzona, Francesco Calzona. If you haven't heard of him, I don't blame you. He was Sari's assistant for a number of years. He's been the Slovakia manager now for about 18 months. Um, he's had a bizarre path to get where he's gotten. He's only appointed till the end of the season, but Napoli are a mess. They're a mess. And the, the team that won the league last year couldn't seem further away. They will lose Victor Osman in the summer. They obviously lost Kim Min Jae last summer. They'll lose Osman this summer. I wouldn't be surprised if they lost Kvicha this summer. They they just look completely lost and completely aimless. And Dilleronitis is doing about as bad a job as you can at running a top-level football club. Uh, we'll move to Portugal next. Familiqueo 2, Rio Ave 1. Chavez 2, Boa Vista 1. 
Portimonense 1, Vittoria 1, Porto 2, Estrella 0, Casapia 1, Aruca 0, Estrell Preya 1, Gil Vicente 3, Benfica 6, Fasula 1, uh, two goals from David Neres in that one. Obviously, rebuilding his career after the his time at Ajax didn't go well, and then obviously went to Shakhtar when the war broke out in the Ukraine. Braga 2, Ferenz 1, and Maronens nil, Sporting 2. Sporting very businesslike last night. Benfica are top, 55 points. Sporting are second, 55 points, with a game in hand. Sporting do have the better goal difference, but because Benfica beat Sporting in the first meeting of the pair earlier in the year, primarily because Goncalo Inacio got himself sent off, um, Benfica remained top. But Sporting, I would say right now, look favourites to win this league. Porto are third on 48 points, Braga next on 43 Vittoria on 41, Marinens on 35, Aruca on 28, Milikio on 26, Ferenz on 26, Gil Vicente 25, Boavista 24, Casapia 23, Porto Menens 22, Estorel 21, Estrella 21, Rio Ave 21, Chavez 17, and Vicella on 16. So good to see Benfica beating up on the bottom team. You know, that's what you should do to those teams. Um, but yeah, sporting for me, favorites to win that league right now. I think Ruben Amram is just on a different level to every other manager in that league and most of the other managers knocking around Europe, especially the young managers. Uh, into the Bundesliga, Cologne won, Werder Bremen, sorry, Cologne nil, Werder Bremen won. Uh, Justin Ninjma with the only goal of the game. Big win that one for Werder. Wolfsburg won, Dortmund won. Fulkrug put Dortmund one up. Yannick Gerhard equalised for Wolfsburg. Heidenheim won, Leverkusen two. Jeremy Frimpong and Amin Adley with the goals for Leverkusen. Tim Kleindienst with the goal for Heidenheim. Darmstadt won, Stuttgart two. Uh, Serhu Garassi put Stuttgart one up. There was a ridiculous amount of stoppage time at the end of the first half. 22 minutes, 23 minutes, I think it was, in the end. Pascal Stenzel was sent off deep into that. Mo Dehoud, who's in on loan from Brighton, scored in the 92nd minute. And then Darmstadt scored in the 95th minute to make it a little bit scary for Stuttgart, but they hung on for the win. Mines won Augsburg. Nil Sepp Vandenberg in on loan from Liverpool with the only goal in that one. Hoffenheim, nil, Union Berlin, one. Brendan Aronson in on loan from Leeds with the only goal there. There was two players sent off in first half stoppage time. Stanley and Saki for Hoffenheim, Kevin Volland for Berlin. Uh, Red Bull Leipzig or RB Leipzig, two. Borussia Mönchengladbach, nil. Xavi Simmons and Louis Openda with the goals for Red Bull. Freiburg, three. Eintracht Frankfurt three, uh, Ritz, oh, sorry, Mar, uh, Omar Mamouche put Frankfurt one up. Ritsu Duan equalized three minutes later. Angsgar Nuff put Frank, Frankfurt two one up in the 35th minute. Griffo equalized in first half stoppage time for the penalty spot. 
Nauf made it 3-2 to Frankfurt on 72 minutes, but Michael Gregorich equalised in the 89th minute and a share of the spoils it was. And then the big one, or the big shock, I should say, Bochum 3, Bayern Munich 2. Musiala put Bayern 1 up. Asano, Ke- uh, Kevin Schlotterbeck and Kevin Stoger from the penalty spot made it 3-1 to Bochum. Harry Kane scored on the 87th minute to get one back. He did miss two sitters in the game, it must be pointed out. Deot Upamecano was sent off. Second time in five days, having been sent off midweek against Lazio. Stunning. Stunning stuff. Um, Leverkusen are top eight points clear of Bayern, who are only four points clear of Stuttgart. Stuttgart have 46 points, which is a great haul for them. Four wins in a row, considering how poor they were last year. And the year before that, Dortmund have 41, Leipzig have 40. Then it's a gap to Eintracht on 33. Werder Bremen flying high in seventh place, if you don't mind. 29 points. Freiburg, 29 points. Hoffenheim, 27. Heidenheim, 27. Bochum, 25. Wolfsburg, 24. Berlin, 24. They've really got their act together after a dreadful start to the season. Augsburg 23, Gladbach 22, not looking good, but they're good enough to stay up because Cologne are dreadful and have 16 points. Mainz have 15 points and Darmstadt have 12 points. So it looks like Leverkusen could well end the reign of terror that has been Bayern Munich over the last decade or so. In La Liga, Villarreal 1, Hitafe 1. Atletico Madrid 5, Las Palmas 0, 2 for Lorente, 2 for Angel Correa, and 1 for Memphis Depay. Osasuna 2, Cadiz 0, Celta Vigo 1, Barcelona 2, Robert Lewandowski with both goals there, Iago Aspas scored for, Vira, uh, for Celta Vigo, Valencia 0, Sevilla 0, Rayo Vallecano 1, Real Madrid 1. Josselu put Real 1-up. Raul de Tomas equalised from the penalty spot. Danny Carvajal sent off in stoppage time. Bad result for Real, but overall not going to affect them too much. Granada won. Almeria won. Real, uh, Mallorca won. Real Sociedad 2. Mallorca went 1-0 up. Uh, Antonio Sanchez, uh, Sanchez scoring the goal. Kubo and a stoppage time goal from Moreno gave Real Sosted the win there. Mallorca finished the game with nine men, which isn't a good look. Real Betis nil, Alaves nil, Athletic Club de Bilbao three, Girona two. Romero on two minutes made it one nil. Victor, Victor Shankov equalized for Girona on 49. Romero scored again on 56, Inaki Williams scored on 60 to make it 3-1. Eric Garcia pulled one back for Girona, but too little, too late. Real are top, six points clear of Girona, who have now lost back-to-back games. They'd only lost once in the league prior to that. Barcelona are next on 54, then Atletico Madrid on 51, Bilbao on 49, Real Sociedad on 40. Real Betis on 39. Valencia, who've improved massively this year, 
on 36, Las Palmas 35, Hitafe 34, Osasuna 32, Alaves 28, Villarreal 26, Rayo Vallecano 25, Sevilla 24, Mallorca 23, Celta Vigo 20, Cadiz 17, Granada 14, and the most pathetic team in Europe this season is Almeria, who have played 25 games and won zero. Zero wins in 25 games this year. That's an atrocity. An atrocity. And little wonder, they are six points below the second worst team in the league and 12 points from safety despite Celta Vigo being dreadful this season. Uh, last league we want to take a quick look at is the Eri Divisi. Only really for one game, but you will tech through all of them. PSV 2, Heracles 0, Sparta Rotterdam 4, Excelsior 2, Fortuna Sittard 1, Azad Alkmaar 2, Heron V 0, Goalhead Eagles 2, uh, Swola 0, Almere 1, Twente 0, the Utrecht 1, Ajax 2, NEC 2. Might want to come back to that one in a second. Vitez won, Volendem won, and Feyenoord won, Walwick nil. PSV are just running away with the league. They are 10 points clear, 22 games, 20 wins. Scored 70, conceded 10. That is ludicrous. Uh, 10 points clear of Feyenoord. Feyenoord are 8 points clear of 20. 20 are 5 points clear of Alkmaar. Alkmaar are 3 points clear of Ajax. So, Ajax of Amsterdam, you drew with NEC, you drew with Bodo Glimt, you lost to Heronveen, you drew with PSV. That's your last four games. What I note is that the four games prior to that, you'd won all of them. You'd beaten Hanover, you'd beaten Go ahead, Eagles. Hanover was friendly, but you'd beaten Go Ahead Eagles. You'd beaten Walwick. You'd beaten Heracles. Now, what changed from a team that won three in a row to a team that hasn't won in four? Well, you see, ladies and gentlemen, they added the great leader that is Jordan Brian Henderson, a man who left Liverpool in the summer having had himself a big tantrum because he was told he wouldn't be first choice anymore, went to Saudi Arabia, Flopped in the Saudi Pro League. Didn't win any of his last nine games in the Saudi Pro League. Won one of his last 13 games in the Saudi Pro League. Has joined Ajax. And now has won one of his last 17 games across two different leagues. And European competition and cups and whatever else. One of 17 Zero of 13. He must have left his leadership back at at the AXA. He must have forgot to pack it. Or maybe, maybe the key to his leadership was Van Dijk, Alisson, Salah, Fabinho, Trent, Mane, Firmino, Wijnaldum, Robertson. Maybe the key to his leadership was actually being carried by great players. Maybe that was the reason. Maybe he's just not a very good footballer. He's certainly not a good footballer at the moment. Uh, they play Bodo Glimt this week in the second leg of the Europa Conference League away from home. 
Not sure I fancied them to win that. And they follow that up with Azel Alkmaar away from home. And again, not sure I fancied them to win that. We do have Champions League football tonight. PSV, who obviously unbelievably good form domestically, take on Borussia Dortmund. That one should be good. That's obviously 8 p.m. But Inter Milan against Atletico Madrid is the big game of the night. Probably the biggest game of the round, the most competitive game of the round. Um, the Diego Simeone derby. Very much looking forward to that one. They're both 8 p.m. kickoffs. I'm going to take a break. Back with the news and the gossip. Right. Welcome back. So it appears that the Kylian Mbappe saga has finally ended and that the French striker has agreed to join Real Madrid this summer. He will reportedly receive a salary of about £13 million uh, per season, which is about two hundred and sixty grand a week. Seems low. But, but, he will also keep a percentage of his, of his image rights and be paid a 150 million euro signing on bonus over five years. So he will actually get 43 million a year from Real Madrid. So now it all makes sense. Um, that they're going to be terrifying. They are going to be terrifying. If you've got Mbappe, Vinicius and Jude Bellingham as your attacking trio. Let's say Mbappe and Vinicius play up front and Jude plays behind them. And then in reserve, you're going to have Endrick, who might be the most talented young player on the planet. Rodrigo, who I think could be an absolute superstar at a different club. And Arda Guler. As your backup three, well, that's pretty scary. Then in midfield, you've got Valverde, you've got Chiumeni, and you've got Camavinga. You've also probably going to have Tony Cruz for another year. And Real being Real, I'm sure there's somebody in the academy ready to step up and probably another one they have their eye on. Maybe they want to add somebody in there you know, that can just be a reliable depth piece. At the back, the report suggests that the next addition would be Alfonso Davies. So you'd have him and potentially Ferlin Mendy as your left-back options. They're being heavily linked to Lenny Euro, so you'd have Lenny Euro and Militao at centre-back with Rudiger and Alaba and Nacho as depth. Probably do one more year of Carvial as the right back, and they probably want to look at a successor to him. Next year, they'll also have Thibaut Courtois back. Andre Lunen has looked really good for them this year, so they're going to be terrifying. They're, I think, a couple of players away from maybe putting together the best, the best 11 we've seen in, and maybe ever, maybe ever, genuinely. Like, I, I had this thought the other day of Real Madrid. If if the appointment of the next manager is someone like, say, Ruben Amram, your Courtois goal, let's say a back three, 
of Militao, Yoro, and Goncalo Inacio. Then you go Valverde as a right wing back, Davies as a left wing back. Both of them are perfectly suited to those roles. In midfield, you go Chuameni and Camavinga, and then you play Jude and Val and Vinicius behind Mbappe. I I don't see any flaw or weakness in that team. And other than other than the goalkeeper, they'd all be twenty seven or under. I think Mbappe might be the oldest of the outfield players. So, like, what could that do over five, six years? Three European Cups? Four European Cups? Like, you look at what Jude's done since going there. You look at how good Vinicius is. You look at those midfielders. You add Kylian Mbappe, who, for my money, is the best player in the world now, to that. That's just... It's almost unfair. Like, it's almost unfair. They're, they're going to be that special. I think I'm glad the sag is over. I was tired of listening to it and hearing about it and all the rest of the nonsense. But Real are going to be really, really scary. Really, really scary. And they could well just put together a historic run, the likes of which we've not seen before. Where Because obviously under Zidane, they won three European Cups, but they didn't dominate La Liga. When Guardiola had that Barca team, they obviously won two European Cups in three years and three La Liga titles. Saki's Milan won back-to-back European Cups and a Serie A, but I could see this Real team running off three in a row of both La Liga and Champions League, maybe even four in a row. Because they'd be so young, so talented, so dynamic. And the thing is, it's Real, so they'll continue to buy players, but they'd be buying the next generation, they'd be buying depth, they'd be buying additional quality. You wouldn't really need to do a whole lot to that first team, if Davies arrives, say if Davies and Yaro arrive this summer and you get one year of them under Carlo and then Carlo moves on and, and Amram took over and let's say brought Inacio with him, you wouldn't need to touch that starting 11 for years to come. And that's only three players after Mbappe, obviously. But with Real are a money-making machine the Bernabeu looks spectacular, is going to make them stupid money moving forward. Their commercial possibilities are endless. They're going to be the dominant force for the next few years, and that's just how it's going to be. Uh, Tom Lockyer has given an interview and talked about his cardiac arrest during the Premier League match against Bournemouth in December. And he said that technically he was dead for two minutes and 40 seconds. That is very, very scary. Very, very scary. For me, I would be advising him not to play anymore. 
like it's not just the one incident. He had the incident in the playoff final as well. Like that's two strikes. I think someone needs to, I know you you probably want to keep playing. He's still a young man, but he's still a young man. He's got a whole lot of life left ahead of him. He's got, I'd imagine, family to take care of. And surely Luton would have a role for him on the backroom staff or in whatever regard. He's only 29. You know, you've got, you've got to focus on your life more than, more than your career. Uh, Jan Sorensen, legendary Danish striker and former Walsall manager. He has retired. I'm sorry, retired. He has passed away at the age of 68. Um, what else did I have there? Oh, here we go. Garth Crooks team of the, Garth Crooks team of the week. Let's have a look at this. Uh, Thomas Frank has said Phil Foden could be a future Ballon d'Or winner. That's a bit of a bit of a stretch. Bit of a stretch. Um, Garth Crooks team of the week. He's got Ederson in goal. Not really. Semedo, Dunk, and Murillo are his centre backs. I mean, Dunk was playing against a ten man Sheffield United and didn't have a whole lot to do. Semedo did play very well, so no issue there. Murillo's a good shout, but Everton were or West Ham were fairly crap in, in that game. He's gone with Sterling and Saka as wingbacks because they both scored. Uh, he's got Odegaard and Joao Gomes in midfield. No issue there. Salah, Hoysland and Watkins are his front three. Hoysland scored a 1v1, scored a fluke, and then did absolutely nothing else in that game. But he's in because, you know, Garth Crooks. Um, a season too far. Time for Roy Hodgson to hang up tracksuit. I'd agree. Apparently, Chris Coleman is no longer in the frame to become Ireland's next manager. Yesterday, he looked like the favourite. God only knows what is coming. There's some terrifying names out there. But maybe my guest yesterday will get a look. Uh, if you haven't heard yesterday's pod, go and give that one a listen. Eddie Mitchell, former Bournemouth owner and chairman, has passed away at the age of 69. Uh, he oversaw the start of their rise from League Two into the Premier League before selling the club to Maxime Den- Denham, a well-beloved figure on the South Coast. Um Ivory Coast have announced that Immerse Fay will be appointed as the, or will be continuing as the national team manager after he worked miracles to turn them from a team that looked dead and buried in the AFCON into AFCON champions. Premier League clubs to meet about EFL funding deal. Hopefully that deal involves more money for the EFL. And finally, Pep Guardiola has apologised to Calvin Phillips for calling him overweight. We'll run through the gossip then. Former Manchester United manager Oli Gunnar Solskjaer is being considered as a short-term option for Bayern Munich if they sack Thomas Tuchel. I just don't believe that to be true. Uh, Bayern Munich are considering a move for Xabi Alonso. That one I do believe. Former Real Madrid manager 
Zinedine Zidane is a candidate to succeed Tuchel at Bayern Munich. I could see it in the summer. I could see it in the summer. Uh, former Birmingham Hull and Aston Villa boss Steve Bruce's interest in becoming South Korea manager after Jurgen Klinsmann was sacked last week. I just don't see that one happening. Uh, but he also features on the shortlist for clubs in the Saudi Arabian Pro League, which you never know. Manchester United are interesting in interested in Bayern Munich and France Ford Matthias Tell. That's been going around for a couple of days. Chelsea are tracking Joshua Zerksy, but face competition from Arsenal, Manchester United, and Barcelona. He's long been touted as you know a, a big, big prospect. Uh, it's great to see him finally putting his talent to work at a high level. He had a really good season for Anderlecht a couple of years ago. Last year didn't go great from with Bologna, but this year he has 10 goals in 27 games. Not a big total, but his all-round play has been really good. Um, Joshua Kimmich is set to leave Bayern Munich at the end of the season because his relationship with Thomas Tuchel has broken down. <clears throat> I think Bayern will be well-placed to sell him this summer. I think I think he's over the hill. Uh, Manchester United want AC Milan's 25-year-old Netherlands midfielder, uh, Tijani Reinders. Pretty good. Pretty good. Aston Villa are unlikely to, to to turn Nicolo Zaniolo's loan into a permanent deal. He has been a bit of a disappointment, to be fair. Um, Villa are considering a move for Oscar Glausch, the Red Bull Salzburg midfielder, also been linked to Arsenal. Brentford director of football, Phil Giles. Former Monaco sporting director Paul Mitchell and ex-Roma general manager Thiago Pinto are candidates to replace Dan Ashworth. I think I would put my money on Phil Giles, to be totally honest. Arsenal are considering a move for Ollie Watkins. Okay. Gareth Southgate is monitoring three uncapped midfielders, Harrison Reed, James Garner, and Kobe Mainu. Um, If he doesn't consider, now he might not be fit, but if he doesn't consider Curtis Jones, he's out of his mind. Technical director Tim Steedten is unhappy and may leave West Ham at the end of the season. Now, much of this will depend on what happens at Moyes, I think. But he's also apparently got a bit of a weird working relationship with Mark Noble. West Ham have put Julian Lopetegui, Steve Cooper and Graham Potter on a list of potential successors to David Moyes. That's fair enough. Crystal Palace... Southampton and West Ham are all considering a move for Jack Clark of Sunderland. He's really talented. Really, really talented. And finally, Manchester United assistant coach Eric Ramsey is set to be appointed manager of MLS side Minnesota United. So best of luck to him in what will be an exciting adventure for him. That's it. That's all I have for today, folks. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.